wouldn't pass muster in the 50s, I'll tell you. No yeah. way, man. You know, like Bell- Bellatar would punch Dave Eggers in the face, you know? Dave Eggers. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dave Eggers. He'd probably punch him in the face, too. <laughs> He'd probably punch a lot of people in the face, you know? The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, oh, oh. The truth this guy's starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> you want to crown them? They crown their ass. But they are who we thought they were. And we let them off the hook. It's hot. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of... The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Andrew Stasulis, and with me tonight is Eric Marsh and Ryan Saunders. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of your hosts selects a topic and the other two hosts are challenged with bringing films to the table that meet the topic, address the topic, push up against the topic, <laughs> buzz the topic, if you will. Uh, and it was my turn tonight uh, to pick the topic. And as I mentioned last week at the end of our previous episode, there's a movie out right now that's got a lot of other people buzzing. Uh, a movie called Top Gun Maverick, the sequel, the long-awaited sequel to Top Gun. And boy, the discourse surrounding this film, it is up in the stratosphere. It's up in the clouds. Boy, oh boy, movies are back. Nationalism's back. <laughs> Everything's back, you know? And it just got me thinking about the the great long legacy of aviation in cinema. So I thought, on the in the jet stream of this uh, this recent film that's got everybody interested once again in fly boys and fly girls uh, to to explore that. So I asked the boys to bring me films featuring their top guns, their aces of the wild blue yonder, and boy. <laughs> did they they did it they they did it we got some pilots we got some uh we got some flying we got some zipping around the skies we got some crashes we got everything you want we also got romance we got it all um so uh without further ado i think we should bring these let's let's taxi the films onto the runway how about that uh <laughs> Let's start with the the early film, the earlier of the two. Marsh, why don't you tell us about the film you selected? Well, it was really my goal from the outset to pick a film that was directed by an aviator themselves. Uh, I know a lot of directors and and other people over the years, you know, uh, learned how to fly some planes uh, and was sort of looking in that territory. Uh, And I I couldn't help myself 
but to go all the way back to the original flyboy himself, William Wellman. Uh, For those who do not know, William Wellman is... uh, on the one hand, uh, one of the classic, classic Hollywood film directors. Made. Directed the, the first Best Picture winner. He did indeed. And he directed, I think, 76 films in his career uh, of all different kinds of genres. But before that, when he was but a teenager, he went to France and joined the Foreign Legion during World War One, and became a fighter pilot pilot and a daring one at that who uh, recorded you know many uh, medals and accommodations for his uh, crazy stunts in the air and his French comrades called him Wild Bill Uh, so it was just sort of a natural you know inclination to, to go back to Wellman Uh, he of course as Andy alluded to directed Wings the first like epic aviation blockbuster so um wanted to channel that energy and i i found out he directed 10 films about flying uh, in his epic 50-year career um and so i decided to choose one of them <laughs> and uh what i came up with was a film i uh, had not seen before uh and It interested me uh, because it appeared to cross kind of the Western in with uh, the aviation or flying genre. And and that sort of piqued my interest in a kind of general way. So uh, the film I selected is Thunderbirds, Soldiers of the Air from 1942. Uh, And after giving you that whole spiel about Wellman, This may or may not exactly be a William Wellman film. This film was the brainchild of the president of Fox, Daryl Zanuck, who, of course, was churning out propaganda material during the Second World War. And Zanuck came up with this story himself after the success of uh, A Yank in the RAF, which was a film, of course, about an American boy who joins up with the Royal Air Force. Uh, So really looking to just kind of rework that formula. And Zanuck tapped Wellman, you know, he said, hey man, you're the the flying guy. And Wellman said, uh, well, I want to do Oxbow Incidents. I want to make this deep psychological Western. And Zanuck said, that's great. You got to do two other films for me and you can't make any changes to them. This was one of those films. So uh, very much a producer's conception, a propaganda film, but uh, ultimately, to make a long story short, uh, or medium, as Ryan would say. (laughs) As my father would say. That's right. Yeah, this is uh, kind of like Top Gun, a a training film where they're out in Arizona in the Thunderbird field in the desert. And it's, yeah, Chinese and British and American uh, boys are being trained to uh, drop bombs on the Axis. And... Ultimately, this concerns uh, a sort of jaded World War I flyer-turned-instructor and a couple of the British uh, sort of recruits. Cadets. Cadets that are being trained here. uh, That all swirls around a technicolor romance with 
Jean Tierney, who, uh, of course, Technicolor was made for. So uh, that, so yeah, there's a little romance, there's a little Western stuff, there's a little like rodeo action, uh, and there is also lots of uh, training and uh, reminiscing about England and other kinds of weird twists and turns, <laughs> twists loop and turns. <laughs> yeah, loop de loops. Thank you, Andy. Uh, yeah, I, I mean. If you haven't seen a William Wellman film, don't watch this one. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, we'll get into it. You know, I, I had a I had a pleasant time. I gotta say. Uh, so that's my film, Thunderbirds. Thank you. While uh, marshes might have made me want to join the Army Air Corps, uh, the film that you chose, Ryan, uh, gave me a, a sort of different uh, impression of, of what it might have been like to be an aviator during World War II. So why don't you tell us about your film? Well, I need to give credit where credit's due, because even though my film feels like a quintessential Ryan pick, a foreign film by a woman filmmaker that has pretty much entirely underseen and disappeared from history, almost no critical writing about it at all, does exist on YouTube, even though I probably wouldn't recommend checking out the copy on YouTube. This is not a film I came across on my own. I actually had the help from Marsh on this. I, I, I My heart was set on another film uh, from Vichy, France, a film from the 40s about a woman who was obsessed with aviation. And though I hope to watch that film one day, when I was talking to Marsh more about the topic and seeing that he was leaning towards a William Wellman film, I also thought the idea of picking a film by an aviator would have been rather fascinating. And he had a few films that he had come across, and one film in particular, Night Witches of the Sky from 1981, which is the film I selected, seemed rather fascinating to me. I had never heard of the night witches that are the subject of this film and after doing a bit of research I you know I set my sights on it and so to give you an idea of this film and the woman who created it the night witches in the sky is directed by Yevgenia Zygolenko who herself was a night witch in World War II and for those that don't know who the night witches are the night witches were a group of female fighter pilots in world war ii in russia who were known for doing their night raids on the nazis and the reason that they have this name of the night witches is because the germans gave them this this moniker because of these night raids that they would do they would fly these planes that themselves were entirely out of date. They were old planes from the 1920s called Polikarpov PO2 biplanes, which are traditionally more used for crop dusting or training craft. They're extremely slow. They're primarily made of paper. Uh, they're very, very flammable, and they could only reach a top speed of 94 miles per hour. But what these women would do is they would fly these planes late at night, and they would glide towards the Nazis. And the sound that the planes would make you could barely hear it. It was like a faint whisper on the wind that the Nazis later attributed to the sound of broomsticks flying at night. So Yevgenia Zygilenko was a part of the 588th Fighter Aviation Regiment. Um, she was very well decorated. And so then later in life, she made this film in 1981, which is sort of a memoir of that experience, both as a 
kind of a nostalgia propaganda piece because March is, was made in the 40s and this film was made in the 80s looking back on World War II at a very different moment in history, which is, I think, something we'll talk about when these films are made and what that sort of means for these films. And, you know, as an aviator and director, she did not have the same storied career as William Wellman. She only directed two films in her three-year filmmaking career. And doesn't totally surprise me. This film is rather clumsy at times. It is around 75 minutes or so, and like many films we've talked about recently on the pod, it feels as though at least 20 minutes are missing from it. But I will say I was very entertained and found the attention to detail very interesting. The core narrative of this film follows this regiment, um, specifically two women, Oksana and Galia, and they uh, share a plane together and on one of their raids, they rescue a young boy named Fyodor uh, after his father has been murdered. And they, they pick him up and they sort of adopt him into the family and all of a sudden all of their motherly instincts start kicking in and they take care of Fyodor, specifically Oksana who longs to have a son after the war and reconnect with her husband who she's lost along the way. And much of the film is really that. It's kind of detailing their day-to-day -day routines, the way they would take care of these aircrafts, the way these raids would happen, and then also painting a very different picture of soldiers during wartime, I think, because it has this woman perspective. And so I think that element really contributes a lot to the personality of this film, and I'm glad I took a look at it. It's got some odd touches scattered throughout that we'll, we'll talk in detail for, and it's um, also got some really goofy airplane sequences that are very reminiscent of the way that a classic Hollywood film um, would shoot, especially a Poverty Row classic Hollywood film would shoot a uh, fighter sequences. The, these planes are not always in the sky, uh, to, to put it very simply. But um, yeah, that is Night Witches in the Sky from 1981. Thank you, gentlemen. Um, yeah, you know, as you sort of alluded to, Ryan, in your uh, introduction to the film, uh, it was quite an interesting viewing experience for me in seeing these two films paired up uh, in the sense that, you know, they, they both certainly have uh, an element of, of uh, you know, national pride and, and propagandistic uh, sort of thinking. Um, but it's, it's, it's a really interesting experience because one, the, the film by William Wellman, the, the film that you selected, Marsh Thunderbirds, uh, is made at a time when we have a global power on the rise. And I think it's very, uh, very clear in the production, in the production values, in the film itself, that this is what the film is about, you know, uh, a great military power ascending on the march. And the other film, Night Witches, is really indicative of a once great power that has certainly been in decline for many years, many years since the conflict that really placed the United States of America and the Soviet Union as like the two dominant military forces uh, in the world. And and it's it's really, really, really very clear when you watch these films 
how apparent that is, you know, in their production values. And also, as you mentioned, Ryan, I think in their their glances, you know, the glance of Wellman's film is forward. It's straight ahead. It's up into the air. America is on the rise, as our allies are as well, but, you know, through us, through our industry, mm-hmm. through our training, through our facilities, through our equipment. And Night Witches is a backwards glance, you know, made in the 80s. Uh, the Soviet Union is only a few years away from completely collapsing. The war in Afghanistan is underway and already going poorly for the Soviet Union. So it's so clear that this is uh, uh, an industry uh, desperate for sort of trying to revivify their spirit through past glories. Absolutely, and I think that that quality is signaled immediately in both films by the music that plays over the opening credits. In Thunderbirds, we have an extremely rousing, you know, boot-stomping song about the wild blue yonder, meant to get the entire audiences clapping along and cheering and then leaving the theater and going to enlist. And then the opening music in Night Witches, I I wrote down the lyrics because I actually Mm -hmm. found them to be very evocative, which is, we go on flying into eternity. We are not just shadows, silent and bland. We're the cry of the cranes, we're the wind. Those killed in the sky for their homeland are becoming the sky over it. And immediately both films have a radically different emotional vibe in terms of their depictions of those up in the air. There's something very melancholic about the way Night Witches opens, thinking about all of these fallen comrades and how they've become, poetically, they've turned into the sky above us. They've become our protectors up above, while Thunderbirds is watching them in training and cheering them as they go on to protect us, looking forward. I think it's very telling, you know, if you think about what you want from a... a good movie about flying around is you want good skies, Mm -hmm. you know? And that's one thing I was thinking about starting with Thunderbirds and then going into Night Witches and going like, man, the Arizona sky is very blue and beautiful and light and just the perfect canvas for these, you know, planes to be flying around in. And... The canvas in Night Witches is a bit murkier, a bit grayer, a bit darker. Uh, It's grim, you know? And I think Ryan said the key word, you know, melancholy. That's like the feeling I got from it. It's very reflective as well, you know, as this kind of memory piece. And yeah, Thunderbirds doesn't have time really to to reflect, you know, except when we reflect on our uh, grandmother in England. <laughs> but uh, in general, yeah, I mean, it 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 is uh, it is what it is. And and I think like interestingly, for all the you know like faux urgency of Thunderbirds and the narration going like. This is happening now. We're training all these flyers now. Like, it feels so removed from the war in any meaningful or engaging way, you know? It's in Hollywood land. It's Mm -hmm. in Arizona. It's just, like, totally this other world, whereas the harsh realities of the world 
uh, in Night Witches are like already there from the beginning. Like they're covered in shit. Uh, they are exhausted. They're catching 30 second naps, you know, like all these little details about how grueling their experience is. I mean, yeah, kind of a blessed, cursed kind of double feature, I think, in just yeah. like every way, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just covered in mud and staring up at the blood red skies. Uh, not of the desert in America and beautiful Arizona, but more of a desolate desert, at least in terms of the color palette in Night Witches. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, in, in a certain respect, unintentional, but it struck me, right, if you think about it, that the flying sequences in uh, Thunderbirds are all, as you mentioned, like in the middle of the day, you know, when the sun is at its height and it's bright and they're flying in clear weather and everything is glistening and gleaming. The planes are are painted this, this vivid blue and yellow and, and they contrast so well against the white clouds and the and the and the blue sky. And you know, the night witches, as Ryan explained, they were running night bombing operations. And so all of their sorties, their their missions begin at dusk, when the sun is dying, when it's setting. And there is for uh, Night Witches, you know, I feel like half the, more than half the movie is set in like twilight, whether, mm-hmm. you know, just as the sun is setting or just as the sun is, sun is rising. So again, contributing visually, you know, perhaps unintentionally very much to that, that melancholic feeling that you both have, have pinpointed, you know, that there's this, this sense of something ending more so than it's beginning, in spite of the fact that the film is about, you know, the, 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 the march of the Soviets to Germany. I mean, the film is a big, for its short running time, it's, it's actually meant to cover several years of these women on the front, you know, and we, we follow them from basically, I think it picks up shortly after the defense of Moscow and the film ends with them in Germany. So we've sort of traveled with them. We've drifted with them. We've gone through the thousands and thousands of missions that they've been running with very little sleep. And yet, in spite of the fact that it's it, it's it's meant to end at, you know, the, the most glorious moment for the Soviet Union, it just feels incredibly empty and 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 tragic almost, you know? Yeah, especially for someone who herself participated in the war and in these raids and is treating this film somewhat as a memory piece or a memoir and reflecting back on her time. There really isn't a feeling of glory. It's more about surviving and, yeah. and or or not surviving, really. You know, it's it's almost just simply trying to. And I think this is where the film, for all of its technical inefficiencies, for me, was somewhat redeemed because, as you mentioned, it's so clearly made by somebody who was there, and you know, like a lot of veterans who tend to make films about their experiences of war. They, they aren't all flag waving. They aren't all rooted in the, the pomp and, and circumstance of that, the, the, the sort of like transcendent idea of war and conflict and the, the nation building and the historical aspect of it all. You know, I think a lot of times when you have war films made from a veteran's perspective, you get a very boots on the ground 
view of things, a grunt's mm-hmm. perspective. And, and of course, in this case, it's not, exi- there are boots on the ground, but I guess it's more like, you know, asses in the seats of the planes perspective. <laughs> sure. Uh, and, and she, in this film, like focuses on very small touches that are very sort of material. And she is very interested at times in showing us you know, what it was like to simply live during this. Mm-hmm. Yes, to fight and die in it, but also just to simply exist, you know, between the the action and the spectacle that, that audiences sometimes really want out of these kinds of things. But she's more interested in uh, discussions about clothes and discussions about you know, sleep in, in, uh, nature, particularly, you know, the women sort of, uh, appreciating the earth, the land that they're fighting for. And I think that's a, it is a very Soviet thing. You see that in a lot of like Russian, you know, propaganda, how sacred the earth is to them that they, they fought and, and died for. But, you know, it's like one of the, the sequences that I think was the best, uh, and the most, you know, well-constructed wasn't even one of the flying sequences, but it was a very kind of small moment that was uh, a very kind of dramatic moment of them simply trying to get their planes off the ground after a a huge rainstorm when the ground was like soaked in, you know, soaked and, and there's just so much mud and muck and it was very hard to get the planes up. And, Mm -hmm. and, and the tension in that moment is them just trying to figure out how to sort of like dig their planes out of the mud and build a sort of makeshift runway with, with logs and wood and whatever they could get their hands on. And, and yeah, you know, like that moment to me was, I thought, uh, one of the best in the entire film, you know, and it wasn't uh, in the sky at all, but simply the, the difficulties of getting into the sky. I like how you bring up the fact that she was a veteran and how that translates to the type of film that this is, because I was thinking the same thing, especially during that moment when they were laying all the planks down, because this film does have bombing raids, but primarily those incidents aren't the incident of the film, Mm -hmm. you know? They almost feel like rhythmic beats to break up the actual just realist element of their day-to-day. And I think that that's something you find a lot in films actually directed by veterans, showcasing how war can often be just a process of sitting around and waiting. And then in this film, that waiting is presented, as you said, with a connection to land, with a connection to each other, their own womanhood, and the types of day-to-day activities they're going through. And I think one of the, you know, thinking about what you said, Marsh, that this is both like a blessed and cursed pairing at the same time. I also think that these films, the main thing that separates them and also brings them together is the way that the director's personalities kind of seep through the cracks of these films, because formally they're so different. As we said, the... Thunderbirds is very much, it almost feels like a commercial at times. It's very propagandistic in that sense. And yet there's still moments of grace and there's still the perspective of someone who is very familiar with the nuts and bolts of it all. You can tell it was still directed by William Wellman 
and directed by someone who is a fighter. And then with Night Witches, it's so clumsy. It's full of all of these crazy zooms. The way the production was arranged was a bit perplexing at times. And yet it's so suffused with personality. It's funny because it almost feels like in its shooting habits, it's trying to emulate classic Hollywood in certain respects, just the way it sets up a sequence shot, or at least even tries to mimic flying in the air. But it's it's corrupted, but also made beautiful by the fact that it's a production from the 80s and is full of these insane zooms and really goofy and jerky camera movement. And so even if these two films are so formally different and approaching the material in a radically different way, I still was surprised at how much personality there was in films that are, you know, are successful to very varying degrees. Yeah, I mean, I think... You know, Wellman has a lot of personality uh, as a as a guy, and I think that you know definitely rubs off in the film. I mean, I think you know I haven't really set up the characters, so like uh, Preston Foster plays Steve Britt, who's this kind of washed up World War One aviator turned instructor, aka William Wellman, William Wellman yeah. <laughs> right? Who got injured in the First World War and had to become an instructor before he got into Hollywood. He, you know, taught pilots at San Diego. Uh, so yeah, like if you don't think this guy's just doing a William William Wellman impression back to the camera. Uh, he most certainly is, you know, because uh, this guy, of course, is very jaded uh, and he, he makes his pitch to, you know, the the gruff uh, Colonel Mac uh, at the base being like, you know, he appears out of nowhere like uh, I'm here to help. I'm here to help for the cause. Right. And we learn, of course, the, the cause is Jean Tierney, uh, who lives on a nearby ranch with her eccentric, rich, cowpoke father. Grandfather. Grandfather. Jesus, grandfather. Yeah. Grandpa Saunders. That's yeah, we're burying the lead here. Yes. It's Kay Saunders and Grandpa Saunders. <laughs> kind of fun. Yes, just like you. Yeah. Just like me. Exactly. Uh, so yeah, I mean, this the Steve Britt character is a total like Wellman, you know, cipher. And there's another very personal touch as well, which is when uh, the British, the the main sort of British character Peter Stackhouse, played by John Sutton, uh, he comes from you know like a long lineage of British flyers. Of course, they're all dead, his father and his brother, and so he's here, you know, to to follow in the family's footsteps and go up into the skies and he shows uh steve a photo of his uh his father because he's like oh yeah i knew him in world war one and it's a picture of wellman in world war one with like the big like mccabe style yeah. fur coat, oh, fur coat. Okay. yeah that makes so sense. little personal touch there he's he, like he yeah the his photo represents you know Long perished World War One aviator, and and also another little touch to that end. I don't know if you noticed it, but but the character Brit at a certain point in the film, he 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 has a crash. You know, he has to jump out, and and he he hurts his leg, and he's walking at the end of the film now with a limp, which William Wellman had. Yes, well, Wellman had a crash, and and you know walked with a, a limp for the rest of his life. So very clearly, yes, a lot of, you know, and I think also in his. In his just general demeanor, his sort of, 
you know, again, that kind of maverick personality of, of, of kind of treating, you know, he doesn't call his commanding officer Colonel. He calls him Mac. He calls him a nickname. He puts his feet up on his desk. He leans back in his chair. He, he is wild bill, you know, he is flaunting authority and, and getting away with it because he's just so damn good. And how do you, (laughs) how do you bring a guy like that down a peg? You can't, you know, you got to let him do what he wants. You got to throw him into a love triangle with a British cadet to really send him spinning, you yeah, know? Yeah. <laughs> and I wasn't able to find a ton of biographical information about Yevgenia Zigilenko, but I did learn that one of the major incidents and major raids in the film, you know, without getting too far ahead of ourselves, that does end in disaster for the Night Witches where a a number of planes end up in flames and there are some severe casualties. That was something that did happen in her regiment. Of course it did. Yeah, Yeah, that was like a real raid where they lost a ton of people because one of the things about this film and one of the sources of tension between the commanding officer and all of these night witches is the fact that, as I said, these planes are extremely light and extremely small, and there was barely room for any sort of excess material, and to the point where the pilots themselves deemed parachutes to be excess material. They talk about that at multiple points in the film. They don't want to carry their parachutes because there's less room for bombs. And that was something that before this film takes place, the specific set of of engagements with the Nazis, um, typically the Night Witches would not carry parachutes. So that's something that sets apart this regiment and this commanding officer who does demand that they do carry parachutes. So there is, yeah, at one point, like a truly disastrous episode where many planes go up in flames, but because the women were stubborn and decided not to bring parachutes, like they had no choice but to crash in like an inferno. And there is a true sense of anguish in that sequence. And I think that you can feel that and it doesn't feel like something that feels like nationalistic sentiment, but more personal sentiment. I like to think that it it's very telling that two real, you know, pilots would make films that have extended sequences of eating shit, you know, like yeah. they're like, yeah, to fly is to crash, right? Or to, to fly is to eventually come down again. And in these circumstances, uh, in the case of Thunderbirds, of course, they go down in the middle of like a dust storm or like a sandstorm in this, you know, classic Hollywood way. And then in Night, Night Witches, I mean, it's just this horrifying, terrible event where everyone's planes are going up in flames. And I, and I thought that was like, to me, I'm like, they're focusing on like that. You know, these are people who've been shot down and they're happy to film extended sequences of what that was like and being saved or being lost or perishing forever. I mean, to be just a a pilot in general in that era was to just know that everyone you knew was probably going to die like at any point at any time. I mean, that's ingrained in both of them as Mm -hmm. people. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it should be pointed out, it is not natural for humans to fly. (laughs) And I think aviators understand that better than anybody. You know, the amount of work that it takes to, to, to get uh, someone into the sky and then the work that it takes to keep them up and then the work that it takes to safely 
bring them down. Uh, and, you know, to your point, Marsh, you know, um, as you know, for listeners who don't know, I'm quite the, the military history buff. Um, you know, the, the, it, it may shock some people to think this because, you know, the longstanding view I think has often been, oh, you know, the tension between the infantry and the air force. And you see that a lot in classic Hollywood films, you know, anytime there's air force guys in a bar with Marines or, or the infantry, they're going to get into a fight because the goddamn flyboys they do the flying and we do the dying. They're up there safe in the sky. But during World War II for the Americans, uh, I think the percentage, you know, of like casualty, like the, the highest casualty rates were like B-17 bomber pilots. I mean, they had something like 50% casualty rates because those things were just... Moving targets. Yeah, you just, you, you fly directly over German cities and you're getting, you know, strafed by fighters hit with anti-aircraft. I mean, 50% casualty rate is insane. The, the life expectancy of a B-17 pilot or crewman was was horrific, you know? And so ironically, the depiction has often been that, you know, pilots had it easy compared to the guys landing on, you know, Normandy beach, you know, on Omaha beach and and stuff like that. But it's actually, when you get into the history, like quite horrific, you know, especially in those planes, the night witches have, I mean, those things again, the, the, I mean, I, you know, I think they're both, both films, they're flying sort of like similar biplanes, right? Because the planes and Thunderbirds are training planes. Yeah. So yeah. not As just were in, the night witches, they were like repurposed right, training ex- Exactly, right? So I did, yeah, I found it funny that, of course, they're both, you know, theoretically fighting the same uh, the same enemy using, you know, the same planes, but one country's using them for training and has so many of them that other nations are being hosted and the other, yeah, using like a 1920s one uh, yeah. to go get lit up by German anti-aircraft. I do love how they show the fragility of those planes very early on in the film to give you a good sense of the stakes because one of the introductory scenes of the film is that two of the night witches go to visit Gallia in the hospital and because of this visit she's inspired to you know break out jump out of the window and join with her regiment and she does return successfully but this really upsets the commanding officer and when she shows her frustration and her anger she smacks her hand down on the wing of the plane and it goes right through. Yeah, punches right through the canvas. <laughs> yeah. Which indicates both the fragility of the plane and how uh, how tightly wound up Comrade Commander was because, holy shit, <laughs> you know? Yes, they're, they're, they're fragile, but my goodness gracious, she punched straight through that thing. <laughs> oh, my God, yeah. She's, well, she's got, you know, she's got a lot to deal with. I did feel really bad for her because... I think that's one of the like the the elements that the film is really trying to get across to is that yeah they're girls. You know, these are girls, teenagers out there, right? right? That's what what it, you know she felt like a like a like a teacher on a field trip, stressed out, you know? And that's again with the sort of like adoption of Theodore by the unit, it starts and also there's like a you know this motorcycle guy. Yeah. <laughs> the Russian James Dean. Yeah. 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 I wrote I wrote that he looked like Sean Penn. He does. Kind of looks like Sean Penn playing He's got James that 
like yeah, that Sean Penn, James Dean Buffont kind of <laughs> hair going on. Yeah. A bad boy on a motorcycle. So right, there's like a love interest. There's so right, there's like romantic feelings being developed, feelings of jealousy, feelings of motherhood, feelings of jealousy over that. And I think one of the things the film really does stress as well too, in in a kind of like warts and all depiction of the Soviet past is. You know, despite the rhetoric, this is like a segregated unit. They're not allowed to talk to anyone. To They're just like in these makeshift airfields, completely cut off from any semblance of society or, or even wartime society, right? And, and yet, ironically, you know, like in that sense so much more advanced than the United States military. Yes. You know, that that the Russians, and partly due to necessity, you know, started to put women on the front lines in combat roles, you know, uh, when in the United States of America, like women were for many, I mean, until fucking recently in some units, kept out of those uh, positions. You know, I mean, hell, the Russians had a female fighting unit in World War One as well, you know, pre-Bolshevik. Right. So, so yes, in spite of the fact that they are kind of cut off and perhaps you wonder out of, again, also just sort of like necessity well right? it seems strategic. <laughs> yes it's it seemed like from higher up sort of in a strategic way like we can't let these you know, these cutie babies get anywhere near <laughs> right. any of the rest of the military you know like yeah you already got james dean's you know zipping over here in his motorcycle and and that's another like tension that plays throughout the film as well for oksana whose husband is serving and they've been separated for years and you know she's longing in in their journeys to be reunited with him, even but for a moment. And there's a really touching scene where they find themselves at a battle together in obviously different roles during that conflict. You know, and, and the amphibious assault. Yeah, that yeah. the the night witches are supporting, and and uh, you know, for her, tr- you know, heartbreakingly, tragically, she's not able to even get a few minutes with him. Like they're they're being kept apart for those reasons. Just a letter. Yeah, because the film does detail the fact that not only is she separated from him, she's lost complete contact with him. She didn't know where he was. He was actually lost to her. And there is that longing there. She keeps her the photograph of him in her plane. And there is also then um, some severe romantic tension at play in Thunderbirds as well, though a love triangle does develop between Kay, Steve, and Peter. Because Steve, as he comes in, the William Wellman type man to, you know, provide advice and training for these other pilots. Little pencil thin mustache. Yeah. yeah. He he really did, you know, takes a liking to Peter, who is a a young British boy. And one of the reasons that they connect, as we mentioned, is because that Steve did know Peter's father and that they had flown together and he had mentioned that, you know, if he was in a jam, that was the type of man he would want flying with him. So he does feel a certain sense of tradition taking over him and like thinking about his past and he feels obligated to to teach Peter who himself is having a very hard time here in flight school he uh, he I probably would be like Peter if I tried to be a yeah. uh, you know a, a pilot I'd just be barfing you know yeah. I don't typically get motion sickness <laughs> but 
seeing how dizzying some of those POVs are in Thunderbirds, I mean, that's enough to make anybody barf. So I did feel bad for for Peter in, in those moments. But yeah, he's got it like an upset tummy. Yeah, a conditional reflex, they say, yeah. <laughs> which is a nice way of saying he's afraid of heights. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he just like gets sick and passes out when he goes up there. But uh, Ryan, they wouldn't let you in either because you can't see for shit. So you're automatically disqualified uh, right. of being a pilot, as I think we all would be at this at this point. Yeah, we'd all wash out. Let's be honest. Yeah, we would wash out, and that becomes. We could probably be in like you know like the tail gun of a of a B seventeen though. You know, absolutely. I could put Ryan in the ball turret underneath a, a big bomber. You know, I, can I see mean, you in there. I'd like that. It's you know my my grandpa Ed was uh, on a bomber crew in the Pacific. True wow, story. Wow. How did he do? Did he make it through? He made it through just fine, and then was like a successful accountant or businessman or something. You know. Wow, good for him. Yeah, he did it. He fucking did it. Part of the reason why you're here today. Perhaps. That's right. <laughs> but, you know, talking about the, the Thunderbirds as being kind of a feeling at least to me like a commercial at times and a bit routine again there are these grace notes and these really remarkable moments and so there is this love triangle that develops and one of the ways it's visually made explicit is this incredible nighttime sequence where steve is lying in bed and it's so dark it's so shadowy oh and it God. looks really cool because best shot best shot of the whole fucking movie. yeah without oh, yeah. a doubt um it's worth watching just for this moment and it's it's very dim and it it was something that you would expect from a black and white film and seeing it this way in Technicolor in the 40s I thought was really impressive. But they're caked in shadows and Steve is lying there in the bed and Peter comes in and he's sitting on his bedside chatting with him and you can barely see both of them. They're completely shrouded in darkness. Completely shrouded in darkness, but you can see the outlines of them. And that's when Peter lights a match for his cigarette and as the warm light fills the room we get parts of their faces but then it also lights up a framed photograph of Kay right on the bedside next to Steve who goes to bed every night dreaming of Kay. What is this, Stackhouse? I'm in love with Kay. Mm-hmm. What about it? Uh, this woman that is just out of reach for him. Between them, yes. Honestly, that whole scene with them, uh, to take nothing away from William Wellman or to give it up to William Wellman, I mean, I was like, this is like something you'd see in a fucking Orson Welles movie at this time. I mean, to have one of your stars' faces completely uh, like blacked out in shadow seems like something in a lot of classic Hollywood movies, they'd be like, that's a no-no. But like William Wellman's, you know, maverick touch perhaps here showing through, you know, to, to, to craft that kind of lighting design. I mean, it really, it's, it is to me the most brilliant like uh, sequence in the entire film. Yeah, so much of the film does feel kind of autopilot, and that scene feels like handcrafted in such a magnificent way. I mean, I already posted screenshots of that moment on Twitter. I couldn't (laughs) help myself, you know, because I was like, this is fucking amazing, you know? And it really is, yeah, that like classic Hollywood magic of all the lighting and all the compositions just like perfectly working in harmony. Oh, so fucking classic, you know? Oh, beautiful, beautiful. 
There are some really, really good compositions with the planes, though, especially the way they use that plane's rear view mirror to get to see oh, Peter yeah. like in the in the back seat. I got dizzy at a few moments because there are just some incredible POV work where just the world is spinning around us as we're focusing on this pilot as he's heading down into a downward spiral. Again, though, it's so indicative of even the two units that the films are focusing on and the the military powers involved, right? Because if you think about it, Thunderbirds is, you know, this 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 propagandistic film made with the the full support of the US military and everything 20th Century Fox can throw at it and they have the best equipment and the best planes and the best technicians and the best lighting guys and all the toys in the arsenal of of crafting a classical Hollywood film and there are the night witches with all these hand-me-downs putting their planes together with tape and fucking string and whatever they can do you know and you see that in the production and in spite of that uh, there still are moments of incredible poetry and lyricism in this like shoddy second tier fuck third tier production that's going on like the night witch unit getting hand-me-downs and and leftover bits of equipment and stuff like that yeah there's something to be said for how uh yeah the aesthetic of the film matches the the night witch's aesthetic you know like they are shabby yeah they are definitely in harmony with one another uh, in that way. Yeah, the film really does feel like one of their planes, uh, just just barely hanging in there, but a plane that, you know, it's old, reliable. It still gives you some grace. Yeah. And it could burst into flames at any moment. Yeah. <laughs> and on the flip side, you know, Wellman can just bust out a 4th of July bucking Bronco party like oh, it's geez. just no big oh. deal, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I had to I had to bring it up because I was having like my lusty man, you know, Hell me- yeah. memories. Hell yeah. Because there's this wonderful moment where, you know, as the love triangle develops, right? Kay, you know, she's not so hot on Steve. He's coming on too strong. He's coming on way too strong. They've already had their kind of affair. He buzzed her while she was taking a bath with his plane. <laughs> he did, which is our introduction, of course, to Gene Tierney uh, in, in a huge wooden barrel bathtub out on yeah. the ranch. Which is probably their drinking water. I looked at that thing, and it's like it's like the well. She's like bathing <laughs> that they drink from. Hell yeah. <laughs> and it was funny. We've had like a series of films that have detailed like very unique moments of tubbing <laughs> as yeah. we talked about with Beverly Hills and and with looking to get out. Don't get me wrong. I'm sure there were a lot of men in 1942 who would have been glad to sip Gene Tierney's bath water. (laughs) (laughs) Anyone at the office of uh, War Information would tell you that Putting Gene Tierney in a bathtub is actually the most like it's going to get more guys to sign up. It's than... the most effective propaganda tool in the film. Hell to yeah. be honest, yeah, I mean, this is what you're would, fighting for, boys. They would tell you that. Oh, 100 percent. And I, you know, something that reminds me of thinking about her relationship with Steve, because one of the roadblocks there obviously is like a pretty significant age gap, and. <laughs> That is, you know, that's something that really does separate both of these films. You know, Night Witches is a poetic looking back at the only woman fighter unit in World War II, and then Thunderbirds is 
pretty explicitly misogynistic at multiple points in the film that I even found honestly like quite shocking for a product of its time. I was pretty amazed at how flagrant some of that was. I mean, well, and Gramps, oh, my in dude, Gramps, <laughs> Gramps yeah. in particular, yeah. dude. Holy shit. So that's sorry. That's where I was yeah. going anyway to Gramps' yeah. big fucking road. 10-gallon hat? He's, yeah, his 10-gallon hat in his fucking 4th of July rodeo party. And yeah, he is he's saying some wild shit oh yeah uh, i'm probably sure we wrote down the, we wrote about, down the same line <laughs> yeah, we I'm all sure. got the same line written down. i mean but she's everything in the world to me she's part of my heart but that don't blind me to the fact that she's a woman and kind of flighty like all the rest if you had half the gumption i give you credit for you'd see that now go on down there and do like i said no use gramps a couple of kids like uh, that so that's what's eating you hey now listen, I was 20 years older than my wife, 22 according to her calculations. Would you think that worried me? No, sorry. What worried me was, was she young enough for me? Uh, however much we want to dwell on that, I was getting to, of course, this moment at the, the 4th of July where the British guy, Peter, the former, you know, med student turned pilot. Who, Sissy boy. Yeah, yeah the, the weak little British boy. He gets on the bronc and he goes full Junior Bonner on their asses. Oh, yeah. oh my God. Yeah. And so basically it's like this classic moment where, yeah, he, you know, he's like winning over Kay, of course, because, you know, this whole plan backfired. Chris Gramps was like, we got to get him on the. Yeah, we got to get him thrown by the bronc, you know, she'll look at him and go, yeah, he ain't he ain't nothing. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, Gramps advertised that Fourth of July event as there being, you know, plenty of pretty girls available for all the men who care to join because there's just simply too much for him. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> pretty girls, all the medicine they need. And we even get a nice moment of the of the Chinese uh, cadets shooting off fireworks. You know, speaking of other sort of elements of of separation, the the Chinese uh, soldiers here don't get any lines really. A couple little like incidents sort of like barracks or sort of like base moments. But yeah, they're more like comic relief. Yeah, of course. Kind of yeah. Yeah. The cuddly they little are. Chinese guys. Which know? is crazy because the, the voiceover really establishes like the Chinese need to get revenge. They yeah. need to get revenge right now. Specifically yeah. for, the, they, for the rape of Nanking. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then it's like, I would really would have liked, I I didn't expect, but I would have liked a, a more of a subplot with that. You yeah, know, like, sure. where's that, like, mix that in, you know? Oh. The Chinese Nationalist Army. Yeah. <laughs> I did really like their revelry at the party, though. I thought that was like a nice, it, you know, for <laughs> as much as this film is, you know, tracking with, you know, certain myths of America and the American West, that was ni- a nice multicultural moment of the, the British doing some bronco busting and the Chinese lighting up some fireworks. Yeah, Fourth of July, baby. But I mean, I, thinking about some of these obviously problematic elements of of Thunderbirds um, does remind me of a a problematic moment that arises uh, during another moment of recreation in in Night Witches that really blindsided me because so 
I got so thrilled at one point in Night Witches because suddenly we're at the beach and they're wearing these really fun 1940s bathing suits. All the gals are thrilled to have some, you know, just some hanging out. And I thought, oh, this is going to rock. This is going to be, you know, soldiers hanging out at the beach, having a great time. Spirits are going to be high, you know, just a moment of bliss and poetry. Um, But that is true. truly truly undermined by a a very grotesque moment where the camera peers over to the tall grass you know bordering the sand on this beach and we hear some tribal drums kicking in and one of the soldiers is like caked in black tar completely and she's created a makeshift tribal skirt and she just jumps onto the beach doing this grotesque pantomime dance yeah yeah it's horrible i could not believe that it's like the scene in uh cliche but not ironic yeah no no and i mean i don't want to make any assumptions but it does kind of seem like something that's so specific that i wonder if like someone in yevgenia's troop did that a hundred percent yeah and I so mean, like russia it's a fucking racist ass country they're worse than <laughs> yeah. the united states <laughs> right right yeah i guess that's you know the only thing that's kind of frustrating i mean well, there's plenty frustrating about it but then in the in that looking back that there is just the film is rapturous in finding this moment you know so hilarious because even the commanding officers arrive and they they're like ah look at the girls just oh, having it's having nice a laugh. to see them having fun i mean at a certain yeah. point someone's like oksana hasn't smiled in seven months or whatever yeah. you know like, Quick, do some blackface. That'll cheer up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Full black body. Yeah, it's 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 grotesque. There's no other way. But it is a it is a fiery crash uh, in the middle of that sequence. Yeah, they uh, they did not have a parachute in that moment. You know, another aspect that I think is kind of interesting to to sort of. Um, compare contrast the films again in this sort of like blessed cursed way is how you know each of them and I, I think we've sort of been discussing that um each of the films has a very different connection uh between the idea of serving in the military specifically i think uh you know in an aviator's role with gender and with sexuality right because what we're talking about in the case of Thunderbirds, you know, it's a film that is equating the idea of, you know, these planes and and being a pilot and being a fighter pilot as as you know a very masculine thing. Uh, the planes are used for courting. The planes, the, so much of the terminology is very, you know, it's almost sexual innuendo. Uh, you know, at, at a certain point, Brit says to one of the the cadets, you know, well, the goal is to get it up and keep it up. Uh, you know, there's <laughs> yeah. so much here about being a strong man being a a man who can produce. And that plays out through the love triangle. You know, the idea here is that Brit, Steve, you know, he's an older guy and maybe he can't quite get it up like the young guys. And he's got to accept that. He's got to accept that and get out of the way of these 
new, young, hard men who can get in planes, who can keep it up, who can give it to Gene Tierney. Yeah, there's that extremely phallic shot, too, of the control stick between (laughs) Peter's legs when Steve's like, grab hold of that control stick. And his hands are shaking as they're approaching it right between his knees. He's jerking it too much. He is, yeah. It's like he's getting instructions from his father. It's crazy. Absolutely. It's it's a father and son relationship that, that sort of develops there. And so much of the flying in that film is referred to in ways of like, teaching a guy how to fuck uh peter is he's jerking the stick he's 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 pulling it back when he shouldn't he's got to learn to go with the motions you know to like rock with it to ride i mean seriously right and the night witches is is it's so much so much of it is actually and again because it's a movie about female pilots it's about motherhood you know and that's a big thing with oksana and you mentioned some of that tension that she has with the younger woman uh galia because mm-hmm. also you know there's a moment where it's revealed that that part of what is haunting oksana is that she was wounded and can no longer produce a child she's no longer fertile and that tears her up inside and it makes her reckless and suicidal. And also, you know, if you think about it with the Soviet Union, so much of their their nationalistic spirit, their propaganda of World War II specifically was about defending the motherland. The Russian mother is very sacred. Russian women are very sacred. More than anything, you're defending your mothers, your grandmothers, your daughters, your sisters from these fascist bastards who want to deflower them and defile them. So it's really, I think, again, a blessed pairing in that sense because you see such two different perspectives on like fertility as a sort of metaphor or, or for flying as a sort of metaphor, serving as a metaphor for for your sexual prowess, perhaps. There's even a moment, too, in thinking about the language that's used to refer to these planes. Lazarev, the motorcycle Russian James Dean we talked about, refers to her plane as a kerosene stove. So think about how sexual and masculine the planes are in Thunderbirds. And here he's referring to it as like, a you know, oh, you're a woman, you're cooking, you're flying around in your kerosene stove. So even there, just the specificity of language, I think, is addressing that specifically. Yeah, it reminded me, too, of when we talked about Roadhouse and how there's like a motif in that film of men referring to women like hunting. Uh, there's, again, as as you mentioned, there's a lot of that. And one line I really liked is is sort of the, the reverse of that. When Steve comes on too hot with Kay, she says to him, I came off the line a woman not a P-38. And I like that, too, because it it implies, again, she came off the line, right? So she was in a factory, like, contributing to the war effort in New York, you know? And you get a little bit of that little bit of that background but uh ultimately yeah i mean thunderbirds like any classic hollywood film is so perverse uh in its you know conflicting confused ideology i mean some stuff absolutely clear but right it's got the you know at the heart of it it is k is a settled woman She's not looking for some hotshot aviator who's some mm. nutcase to just be, you know, 
this man of action running off all the time or whatever. This is the classic conflict of like most Westerns or whatever. Uh, and it's, and that's here. And then the film is like, well, what about this British guy who's actually really not, I mean, they're very different people, but like at the end of the day, he's also a man of action. So like, it's very funny. That like, <laughs> Well, it's, it's, it's different because this is a training film, right. you know? And so in that sense, like like a lot of Hollywood war films at the time, they're conversion narratives. Uh, mm. You know, people have to be converted into a fighting machine. People have to be converted into this thing that can, can contribute and fit into their role, you know? Because that's also the thing for Steve. You know, he has to be converted from being a, a hotshot flyboy into like, hey, no, now, now your place is to train, you know? Like you had your war, you had your conflict, you have to step aside and contribute in a way that you can. We don't need a, a, a you know a wild bill like you jumping up there and and recklessly, you know, throwing yourself at at the Nazis as much as you'd like to. We need your experience. We need your maturity, your guidance to prepare these young men to convert these young men to take this guy who who gets vertigo when he stands on a chair <laughs> in his fucking bunk house, you know. In to a guy that can, you know, can act, can act decisively, can overcome his fears and contribute. And there's also the that whole aspect too that we didn't really get into of the weird break in the film where we get the kind of flashback to to his his initial uh, conversion from a from a doctor to a cadet in the RAF where he is offered up sacrificially by his grandma. I mean, that sequence <laughs> was the most insane. It was like, it reminded me so much of, of, um, you know, the great sequence in, in Sergeant York where he, you know, goes into church and that moment of, of, you know, preparing him to be a sort of sacrifice, you know, in the case of Sergeant York, you know, religiously in the case here for, for the English, you know, very, very sort of British, very cold and practical. I love that whole sequence with the grandma. Dear Mr. Churchill, I've just received news of the death of my grandson, Thomas Stackhouse in action over Wilhelmshaven. And I want to make an immediate reply in the way I know would have been his and his father's reply by striking back straight to the mark. I'm asking you therefore to purchase for me a suitable aircraft preferably a bomber with which to carry on his work. With the deepest regrets that I have no more sons or grandsons to take it into battle, I remain as always your devoted servant, Jane Stackhouse. Have you forgotten me? I spoke to the superintendent before I left the hospital. He's agreed that I'd be transferred to the RAF immediately. You better add a postscript. And like many of the details in uh, Night Witches, of course, the character played by Dame May Witty here uh, is based on a real, you know, person who uh, had all of her sons killed and was like writing checks, you know, to Winston Churchill, buy more planes, yeah. you know, and so that lore Go is... kill some Nazis <laughs> for me. <laughs> yeah. So that lore is worked in here and, and in a really... 
uh, bizarre moment of of culture, you know, bringing cultures together, the grandmother cites Emerson, uh, which is a very fucking hilarious moment in this like total reach of, you know, yeah, this allied film that's trying to like tie together all these different strands. And I mean, again, going back to the, the sort of sexual thing, because the trajectory of the film then is once... Peter Stackhouse, you know, becomes a real pilot, then he can have sex with Gene Tierney, you know? Like, so again, it is all about, yeah, once he fulfills uh, that sort of training. And I was also thinking, too, it is like how the British got their groove back kind of narrative as well, because there is a lot of reminiscing or discussion of, like, the lights of London, it's all dark, you know, the Battle of Britain, this and that, right? So, like... You know, we all know in what was going on in 1942, not exactly the the brightest days for the English, right? And so it is about like, yeah, licking their wounds and then let's let's get back at it, you know, like that kind of attitude throughout it. Yeah, especially once, you know, the United States is now fully on board and the arsenal of democracy has opened its warehouses to the Brits, to the Chinese, and not just that, you know, we're offering our bodies for sacrifice as well. I mean, I don't know how much research you guys did in, you know, why this film was produced, and particularly at the time that this film was produced. I mean, aside from the fact that it's a film made during World War II, but this is a film that was produced shortly after the release of a book, a book that was very, 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 I mean, it was the number one bestseller. It was a book that was produced, or written, I guess I should say, called Victory Through Air Power in early spring of 1942 by a Russian, interestingly, a former Russian pilot who wrote this huge manifesto about the United States and air power and how the future of military conflicts and particularly World War II is going to be through air superiority and how the United States of America needs to fully get on board with, you know, dumping more tax dollars into our air force and specifically strategic bombers and, you know, equipping planes for long range, you know, missions and that sort of thing, converting another conversion narrative, converting our air force into something that was meant to just support the infantry to be the thing that was going to be like winning the war for us. So this book came out, was a number one bestseller in early 1942. This movie is then produced in late 1942, and it is a complete showcase for our military and specifically guys who are training to become bomber pilots, right? And lead the war effort in this way and featuring a woman who was helping Churchill pay for bombers. And, you know, this book would also then go on to be made into a film by Walt Disney, of all people, who read the book and fully believed in it. And he made a movie, a documentary called Victory Through Air Power. And that book, that movie, and movies like this really did, you know, it's noted, convince Churchill and Roosevelt to say, you know what, you're fucking right, let's go. And they upped production and they started to change the Army Air Corps into the Air Force, its own independent branch. I mean, this film fits directly in yeah. to that that actual campaign that was underway, started by some crackpot 
ex-Russian pilot. <laughs> wow. I really like the idea of reading this film as like a conversion narrative of sorts, because even related to all of that and its vision of American air superiority um, and developing that, there is an element of conversion culturally for the British to sort of convert to specific American values and American way of life. Because there's a whole sequence where Kay takes Peter out camping. And of course, it's in the deserts of Arizona. We have the red rocks, we have the saguaros. It's it's beautiful. And they're heading out for like a, you know, a real rough and tough night out in America as Americans. And she's showcasing qualities that like, you know, make someone a, a tough American. There's even a funny moment when she she cooks them hot dogs. She's like, you gotta get used to this. This is a, you know, this is great American cuisine. And the hot dog <laughs> itself is like it I kind of had a hard time deciphering it. I was trying to zoom in on it. It looked like it was multiple hot dogs yeah. wrapped around bread and there's no there's nothing on it. It's a dry dog. Yeah. I wrote Look, a skate. We're Chicago guys. We know hot dogs. Yeah. And the Chicago dog was invented in the 30s. So there's no excuse there. But I, I wrote a scathing note about just the absolute garbage she is serving up for this guy here. She, You're right, Ryan. <laughs> yeah. It comes in and, and she is wearing this like amazing plaid shirt and has a tong, has like tongs with eight hot dogs on them. <laughs> seven or eight. I tried to count, but not a great copy, you know. But yeah. seven, seven or eight hot dogs. And she takes a hamburger bun, puts four hot dogs between a hamburger bun with no condiments, hands it to this fucking British guy and is like, eat up. This is an American delicacy. Yeah, this is an American <laughs> delicacy. Just fucking hot dogs and plain bread. Yeah. And I was going nuts. Oh, yeah. Meanwhile, Gramps is over there. Do you catch him? When, in that whole sequence when he was telling Steve, you know, you just got to go take the woman. My wife was 20 years younger than me. That didn't stop me. And I was doing the math. So I was thinking, he must have had a child bride. But yes. But Gramps yeah. was sitting there next to a whole roasting suckling pig, you know, in his 10-gallon hat <laughs> and his, his uh, cowhide vest. So, yeah. I'm eating with Gramps. I'm not eating with Gene Tierney on that one. Just <laughs> not a great representation of our culture. No, no. There's a little bit of a conversion narrative, too, in terms of Fyodor, the young boy in Night Witch, is sort of converting into being a, a soldier. I mean, the film itself begins by saying it's dedicated to all of the woman flyers brought up by the Komsomol, you know? And here we have a, a young little communist. We have Fyodor, whose father, a good, honest farmer peasant, has been struck down and then saved by the, you know, the Night Witches of the sky picking up Fyodor during the day. So they're like angelic as they come to rescue him. And, you know, they try to take care of him, but he does become obsessed with the idea of being a soldier in a way. He There's some really funny moments where he's playing with all the different guns, like he's oh mimicking firing off the, you know, the machine guns on the back of the planes. I mean, at not, one just, point, not just that, Galia at one point just like hands him her Tokarev pistol gun, and yeah. is like, <laughs> here, here's how this thing works, you know? Holy fuck. But I think that, the militarization of Fyodor does lead to a lot of pain for him 
um, as he's getting quite roused and just the roller coaster of emotions he's going through um, and the way that he like acts out against others. I mean, I think w- one of the first moments of pain, maybe this doesn't relate specifically to the militarization of Fyodor, but there is that moment where after Oksana has been reunited with her husband and she has talked at length before this moment to Fyodor about how, you know, I can be your mother. I can bring you into my family after the war. And she meets him in a field, right? Another like Russian idyllic field. There's a few moments with this like beautiful lush fields of wildflowers in Russia. This, you know, the moments of nostalgia. And she's running towards Fyodor in this field. And she says like, I found your father. He's alive. I found him. And he interprets that, of course, as, oh, really? (laughs) My father that's been shot down in front of my eyes is alive? Like, this is a miracle. And she's like, oh, well, not your dad, your dad, my uh, husband who will be your dad. And it's like this tragic moment, and he stalks off. But then that pain develops throughout, and as that pain amplifies, he does kind of find himself drawing himself more towards setting his sights on being a fighter and being a soldier. Well, he also gets involved in a love triangle of his own because, you know, he... Uh, really attaches himself to to Galia, and Galia is is doting on him a lot, and that also pisses off Oksana. So you kind of have a triangle there. Oksana specifically like takes Galia to task for it, and is like, you know, you're treating him like a toy. I want to treat him like a son. You know, he's like a son to me. But uh, you know, there's also a moment where Fyodor gets very jealous of uh, of James Dean. <laughs> I keep calling him James yeah. Dean when he shows up to court Galia, and and Galia like shoes him away. You know, like I'm trying to have a quick little tryst here with this guy who drove 200 kilometers on a motorcycle. Yeah, like, real childhood is over moment. Yeah, there, like you gotta you back know? off. And Fyodor gets so upset. You know, he goes over and he he goes to to the guy's motorcycle and he like picks up that rock and is gonna throw it at it. But then he's like, ah, I shouldn't fuck up his bike like that you know and then instead just pisses on the guy's bike yeah. like i awesome. was i was like i love that moment again it was just such a very clunky moment but but a moment filled with such like raw emotion and again i think that's that's one of the things that kept me involved in night which is was mm-hmm. the the honesty behind the emotions you know i don't think there's a lot of honesty behind the emotions throughout thunderbirds yeah. uh, <laughs> but but the night which is like it is a very sensitive you know at least it attempts to be at times very sensitive in its portrayal of what you know how 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 difficult it is to just simply like be a human in wartime in these terrible places and in these terrible positions and dealing with death and loss and separation and children who are forced to suddenly just snap your fingers and grow up you know uh it is quite touching at times yeah no i completely agree and i think there's an extremely perceptive moment of human behavior in that specific scene you were just describing where galia the words she uses to shoo fyodor off so she can go make out with russian james dean is why are you following me get away and then after fyodor pisses on the bike and 
makes his way out of there, there's another young girl that has been developing somewhat of a friendship with Fyodor. And when she comes to him, seeing him in tears, she tries to just momentarily comfort him as a young child would. And he spits back the exact same poison word for word that he just received from an adult. He says, why are you following me? Get out of here. And I thought that that was pretty intelligent, the way showcasing the way that the emotional violence is something that can be inherited, that he's just learning by example and maybe someone who is an inherently cruel, being cruel in a moment because it's emulating the cruelty that was immediately proceeding directed towards him. Well, they all are, because again, they are so young and they are impressionable because that becomes another like haunting part of the movie later where after Oksana has sort of vanished or died or gone missing in action, uh, Galia starts to say things that Oksana used to say to her that were like totally opposed to her previous attitude. So she starts to like take on Oksana's sort of position on Theodore. Like he's my son, you know, Uh, that kind of whole thing. So there are these like, yeah, inherited kind of qualities. Cause again, they are in this like hermetic sealed off world where, all of their relationships are very intense in that way, you know? Fyodor does leave at one point. He's sent to a boarding school because that's something that the commander insists upon constantly. She doesn't want Fyodor around. That's a source of tension with her. Like, she's like, he's too much of a risk. Like, we need to be focused on the task at hand. Well, I don't and think it's l- much as, like, she doesn't want him around as it's, like, policy, like, you well, can't yeah, just that's, have I mean, this that's what kid I mean, yeah. in a flying regiment. <laughs> like, right. I yeah, want was the wrong word. That's what I meant. <laughs> she's like, eh, she's in charge. I just want to be clear. It's I don't think it's personal with her. No, she's no, just no. trying to. <laughs> yeah, he's not like a bad apple, and she doesn't like having this little boy around. You know, there's a slew of offenses in the uh, Red Army that can get you shot in the back of the head. You know, <laughs> exactly. And I imagine that is is got to be on the list somewhere. Yeah. Again, and this is partially because of how rapid fire everything in this movie is and having this condensed feel, but he does leave and he goes to boarding school. They go on a few raids and it's during this raid where there is that disastrous night where planes go up in flames, Oksana dies in the sky, and Galia just barely makes it back. She, you know, returns to their airfield just wrecked, you know, bloodied and covered in dirt and really fatigued. And soon after that, but a significant amount of time has passed. Fyodor does return as new recruits arrive to their airfield and Fyodor uh, figures out a way to sneak in by hiding in a barrel. And there's a funny moment of Fyodor climbing out of the barrel and running towards them. And he's so thrilled to see Oksana. And then when he asks like, where's, where's Oksana? Where's this woman who wants to be my mother? They don't know how to tell him and break the news that, she's died in combat and it was in this moment because Fyodor then is so distressed and he like darts out of the frame that for some reason like he you know he runs to the, her plane to try and find evidence of her still being alive but my first instinct was that he was running back to climb back inside the barrel <laughs> to be like shipped back to Moscow <laughs> yeah uh, just yeah 
I, you know, a little throwback here. When I was looking at Fyodor throughout the film, I couldn't help uh, but, but of course, compare him to another child uh, we've we've explored on this podcast in desperate situations. The and, Dirk Man in a survival situation. Yes, and I was thinking <laughs> how how much more capable Fyodor would have been in that same circumstance that oh. that Durky found. Durky did wasn't the first thing that Durky did is he blew up the plane like on his own. <laughs> you know? And and at a certain point Fyodor is like uh, kind of like an unofficial mechanic by the yeah. end of the movie. He's like, give me he that really socket is. wrench. Yeah. The only reason he isn't a pilot is because his feet don't reach the pedals. Exactly. You know? Yeah. And you know it's a very different use of barrels in Thunderbirds <laughs> where we see uh, at the beginning and at the end of the ritual dunking of <laughs> the pilots after a successful solo flight and so that's another element where you know eventually again it's it's not really a compelling narrative uh whether peter stackhouse is gonna get his guts and learn to fly yeah there's no question there's no it. question that he will and he does so of course thanks to Kay and thanks to steve who despite losing out in the love triangle has supported peter in his efforts against the brass even standing up for him saying look this guy's whole family got killed by the fucking nazis like he's ready to go he's devoted okay yeah <laughs> just because he gets a little sick like this guy's ready to like he's ready right now yeah. you know yeah uh, mentally right who cares how long he lasts let's just get him out there you know <laughs> I'm glad you brought up the dunking because this movie also has quite a bit of slapstick comedy, uh, mainly just through one sequence of extreme physical comedy that the nurse really felt sequence. Yeah, it felt like so tonally at odds with other moments in the movie. But just they there's like a big pratfall and then. Steve is carried out on a stretcher where the the fabric, much like the planes and night witches, just is not very strong, and he falls through the stretcher, and they keep picking him back up and bumping into stuff. A Chinese a Chinese guy gets beset upon by like a seven foot tall nurse. Yes, like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was gonna say there's a lot going on in that scene. I I almost wish it was directed by Jerry, but it, it kind yeah. of like struck me. You know, it's like proto Jerry. It, yeah. It's got proto Jerry vibes because, right, there's a and it's so colorful too, you know. Mm -hmm. There's a series yeah. of gags of like, you know, these nurses putting on fake bandages, they're all training, you know. And they first it starts with, you know, the Brits, it starts with Peter, uh, and then all of a sudden, like, everyone's clamoring to be like, I want to be helped by the nurses, I want to <laughs> be in this training exercise. And it causes like pandemonium, and like Gramps is like ushering in the Chinese cadets as well. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and yeah, there's jokes with this like, you know, extremely tall woman uh, throughout all these bandage gags. Yeah. And a very short Chinese man. Yeah. Well. Oh, they really, yeah. They really they go emphasize there. that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's crazy. There are a few moments, too, where I felt like Night Witches was teasing me. Uh, as once previously mentioned, there was the beach scene, which I thought would be delightful, but it kind of takes a pretty significant detour into some really dark territory. But then later on, I also got really excited because I was expecting a big ball. And that's like still a nice scene by itself when the women are told a ball is going to happen, a big grand ball. And they get all excited and they start putting costumes together. And it even has then, again, a bit of like very Jerry Lewis type comedy where oh, Fyodor... Oh, Fyodor! Yeah. 
<laughs> he's like futzing around with a uh, you know an old bit of armor uh, that's on display and he he undoes one screw and the armor just comes crashing down and splays all over the floor but i would have loved to have seen a sequence at the ball that would have been nice but the moment of them just again seeing happiness in that movie really hit because of how grim some some other moments are and they both like end i i think you know we've kind of alluded to it but they also both end on that that sort of cyclical note that again you see in a lot of war oh, films yeah. and training films and and conversion narratives where you know we've we've been with one core unit we've seen them go from sort of like raw recruits up to you know people who are either seasoned veterans or or ready to enter the fight you know that they've been fully prepared and we get that inevitable scene where here comes the next group you know the next green cadets the next you know uh, replacements for the night witches uh and yet in both films again considering what they are and what these uh films were 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 striving to to do they they come off in 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 very 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 different ways right and in yeah. Thunderbirds, it's, you know, here we go, you know, more for the fight. Onwards we go, ready to march. And in the Night Witches, it's, it's again, here come more lambs for the slaughter. More, more people who are going to become, as you mentioned in the beginning, Ryan, uh, just another part of the sky, right? Another part of the earth offered uh, for the motherland, for Russia. And I think even... In the end of night, which is that's that's when the song comes back in that you 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 know you laid out the lyrics for us earlier, where it's it's sort of reinforced the the sort of sadness, the melancholy of it, you know, of these people who are eager to join and yet have no idea what's ahead of them. Yeah, there is a significant weight at the end of Night Riders that surprised me. Night Night Riders. <laughs> There's a significant <laughs> weight at the end of Night Riders. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree. They're very, they're very much so is, because um, the final moments are shared between Fyodor, aka Russian Durkey, and Russian James Dean Lazarev, because they're waiting for Galia to return. Um, they've been gone for a very long time and they're starting to do the math and they're thinking, you know, I, I don't think they have enough fuel at this point. Like how on earth could these planes make it back? But it is still reinforced with this certainty and this hope. That's all our Galia. You know, she always comes back. We know she's going to come back and Lazarev puts his arm around Fyodor, you know, and then they look to the skies and that's when the song comes back in. And it's very cyclical because we're not actually given visual evidence that these women will return but it's more spiritually that we feel like they always come back this sense of camaraderie and this you know belief in the the, the project of the soviet union like it's going to keep these women in the sky fighting for us and the cause will go on it's a far cry from the voiceover at the end of Thunderbirds, which is basically like, there they go, the Thunderbird pilots, no longer novices, no longer boys being trained, no longer fledglings. They're out of the cradle now, they're experts, they're veterans. Thunderbird Field has done its job, now the boys do theirs. 
Watch them fly, these young pilots who send their messages in the form of bombs. <laughs> you know, just like, just going off on all these superlatives, you know? There's a score to settle with Tokyo. Uh, it's really bombastic. And, and yeah, you know, even for all the the grueling experience of, of going through this with the Night Witches, I was really struck by that downbeat ending. I mean, it is a really like ominous Mm -hmm. and poetic note to go out on. I didn't really expect it. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, again, it's, 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 it's so emblematic of, uh, a lot of Soviet cinema at that time in looking back, uh, and, you know, the cracks have been showing in their project, as you mentioned, Ryan, for, for many years now. And it's this sense of, can we get back to where we once were? I don't know if we can, uh, which is, again, so different from the kinds of, of reintroduction of World War II narratives during Putin's era, right? After the fall of the Soviet Union and several years of wondering what the hell they were going to do going back again to that World War II project, going back to that nostalgia project in their cinema, but looking forward this time, you know, using the using World War II to look forwards instead of, you know, films like this or Sergei Bondarchuk's They Died for Their Country or They Fought for Their Land, you know, it has different titles, which is, again, a, a sort of film looking back from the 70s towards World War II and focusing on the sacrifice and the sadness and the loss of something along the way, uh, where, you know, in Putin's cinema, World War II, it's like they've, they've found something again here, and it's it's the project moving forward. So I think it's, yeah, it's so telling of when this film was produced and when it was made. Yeah, we'll have to check out the the Putin rendition of this story. There is a miniseries that came out a couple of years ago, um, I think 2013, called Night Swallows. They they change up the language. They're no longer night witches. But yeah, I'd be very curious to see see what that film is like. And I guess I would say, too, you mentioning, Marsh, that you were surprised by like the power of the ending. I will say throughout Thunderbirds, you know, as much as the time as I found the film to be on autopilot, except for a couple moments that I had that we've brought up in our discussion on it, I really love the climax of Thunderbirds. I think it's pretty thrilling. The actual rescue in the dust storm when Steve as he's sort of handing off the reins to Peter up in the air, he's finally allowing him to have his solo flight. He's the only person that believes in in Peter who keeps, you know, he's just a British boy who keeps barfing throughout the film. <laughs> Steve jumps out, and as he's on his way down, he sees like, oh, shit. There's like a huge Arizona dust storm on its way. And I think that just the combination of the aerial photography, the elements at play, it was pretty rousing. I loved the image of Steve's parachute getting caught up in this dust storm that he can't hold on to ground. He can't right himself up. He's being dragged across the desert floor because the winds are so strong. And the actual footage of the plane like going down and, you know, 
Peter proving himself and having this remarkable landing in the most adverse conditions imaginable. That was a scene directed by an actual pilot. Yeah, I think it it it, it invoked you know <laughs> memories. I'm sure for William Wellman of of dramatic landings on Douglas Fairbanks' front lawn to go to a, a champagne party and, and bang some young starlets and get himself thrust into the movie pictures, you know? It's absolutely true. Yeah, I, I really, in that moment, I was thinking, like, I, I love it, though, because that's when, like, the Wild Bill shit comes out, when Steve, you know, they're up there, and he's like, all right, peace out dude and he just jumps out of the plane to force this guy to fly solo yeah you got this it's a total <laughs> you know Bodie from point uh point break kind of move you know like that's some that's some shit you would pull on johnny utah when he was getting too uptight oh yeah yeah you know uh the thunderbird airfield as featured in the film thunderbirds was in fact basically started because of an investment by jimmy stewart who would go on to become a great pilot himself but it was a it was a co-production between an airline called Southwest Airways and a bunch of Hollywood actors and they built Thunderbirds Airfield in 1939 so it was like ready to go once this like expansion of the military happened so Jimmy was was on it eyes in the sky all along Definitely. I'm sure they got a pretty penny from the government for that. I bet they did, yeah. I think Cagney was in on it. You know, a whole bunch of them were in on the deal. Well, Andy, uh, these were our picks for uh, the top guns of cinema. Yeah, I hope you liked them. I mean, like, to varying degrees. I know that they were a bit messy, but, I mean, I, I forgot to mention in my intro, you know, the moment I saw Night Witches and I was reading about it and I thought, you know what, I'm going to give Andy a little present. You know, I thought like, I think I, I was like, this movie looks like something Andy's going to like, you know, I know you had your, your com block phase on the pod. So I wanted to, to, to give back a little bit. Um, so I hope, you know, I hope it at least scratched that itch a little bit for you. Yeah. I mean, I was, uh, you know, I'd known of the night witches before, so it was cool to see a movie about them. And, and certainly it's, it's a, it's an interesting cinematic curio in that it was made by one of them. So, so that's, that is cool. Yeah, the movies are, they are what they are. I mean, like, uh, you know. Watch the Oxbow incident. Yeah, yeah. Go watch the movie that, <laughs> that this movie made, you know, what that the Thunderbirds made, you know. But, yeah, it's, I'm very familiar with films like the Thunderbirds. I mean, and if you've seen one, you know, film produced during World War II in the United States of America, you've, you've kind of seen them all. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's, it is what it is it's gonna have a it's gonna have a big rousing official song to open it you know the the air force the air force hymn or whatever and and uh yeah you're gonna see a busby berkeley style choreographed sequence featuring soldiers or equipment lined up you know yeah you've, you've, you've seen them all but it's fine yeah i mean there are images from both films that i'm never gonna forget yeah so say what you will about them they have real images that are impactful and that are going to linger on in my memory. Um, yeah, are there any other visions of the sky that that do that for you, eh, Andy? 
Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, I've seen I've seen lots of them, uh, so <laughs> it's kind of hard to think of one. Um, to be Why honest, you rattle with you, off a few but, for the head. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, for, from classic from the classic Hollywood era. Uh, I you know again, if you want to go the jingoistic route, I'm I'm quite a fan of the Flying Tigers, starring John Wayne. It's just also one of my favorite stories of the war effort, the Flying Tigers, the American volunteers flying for the the Chinese nationalist government, you know, against the Japanese before we were even officially involved in the war. Uh, I mean, you want to talk about some wild bills. It's a very wild bill thing to do. Yes, yes. Uh, it's not a great movie, but again, it's it's of that era and it's interesting to, to look at it. Uh, Nicholas Ray made one that I don't think is terrible called The Flying Nether- oh, yeah. Leathernecks with uh, Bob Ryan in there. Yeah, with Robert Ryan. Uh, that one's worth watching. Some of the more contemporary ones, though, that I, I'm, I'm quite a big fan of, I think that uh, Memphis Bell is an amazing film about bomber pilots b-17 bomber pilots uh from the 90s it's got all those those sort of like you know 90s pretty boys you know it's got uh uh eric uh what's his face redhead eric stoltz eric stoltz is in there billy zane's in there uh, you know, you got uh, Sean Astin in there. They're all in a. How have I not seen? This? Oh, it's a great one. I mean, honestly, it's 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 actually a really sick film. It's it's one that I think is one of the best depictions of what it was like to be in a B seventeen. Um, and then there's you know me, I'm a big fan of HBO original movies from the '90s, and there is a great one about the Tuskegee Airmen with. Lawrence Fishburne and a young Cuba Gooding Jr. as Tuskegee Airmen. And it's a sort of conversion narrative. And and it's a beautiful depiction of what those guys went through as one of the most decorated uh, uh, fighter units in the American military during World War II. So again, not a perfect movie, but a, a beautiful story. And, and I think they did a really good job of, of telling it. I'll watch Larry do anything. Oh, it's great. Yeah. yeah. And I guess I would be remiss. You know, I picked a, a Russian film I, about flight. I would, I still feel it's obligated to, you know, recommend the great Ukrainian filmmaker Larisa Shiptiko's film Wings. Uh, that's, a, that's a flight movie I really love too. So I'd recommend people check that out. Not a lot of flying in it, but it's a, it's a beautiful movie about a pilot. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's really about the loss of your wings. Then uh... That's why I didn't pick it. <laughs> <laughs> so I was uh, called uh, into action, called into service this week. Ryan, I believe you're up next. What do you got for us? Well, I, um, I've got the bug again. And I've been watching a lot of Frederick Wiseman films. He's my favorite American filmmaker. He's someone I greatly admire. And just diving back deep into it again has been a blast. I've been listening to the Wiseman podcast, which I'd also recommend people check out if they're interested in Frederick Wiseman. Marsh made an appearance on one of the episodes. He did a great job talking about juvenile court. I talked about getting arrested as a teenager as well. (laughs) Yeah, it's awesome. It's a story I hadn't heard before, and it was was nice to listen to. Um, But also kind of strange to, like, hear it on a recording and not just have you tell me about it. But yeah, no, so it's a great podcast, and, and specifically Specifically, I watch Primate, and you know, Wiseman talks about reading his films not as documentaries, 
but as fiction. And I, I loved something that the wise guys said on the Wiseman pod. They talked about Primate being like a science fiction movie. And I was like, wow, what a crazy way to read that movie. But then it got me thinking about the fluidity of the documentary form. And I it probably, I feel like I'm signaling all sorts of different topics. So I'll just, you know, get down to, I mean, to make a long story medium, I'll get down to the, to the topic itself. I was thinking about one of my favorite forms of filmmaking, and that is the documentary hybrid. The types of films where fiction and documentary become extremely fluid throughout. Thinking of movies like Close Up or even recently the work of Robert Greene, the way that performance and recreation and narrativizing fiction and reality. I love that stuff. I am a junkie for that type of cinema, and I'm in the mood to watch some more. So my topic for both of you next week, then, is find me something stranger than nonfiction. Bring me hybrid documentaries that play with reality and play with truth in interesting ways. You got it. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. These young Englishmen are going to bomb Berlin just as they bombed Essen, Cologne, and Düsseldorf. These young Chinese will harry the Japanese invaders from the Yangtze to the Yellow River. They have a score to settle with Tokyo. They'll settle it. Watch this. And these young American Thunderbirds have some bombs and bullets up their sleeves, too. These are the young men who are fighting for the rights of free people everywhere. These are the pilots. These are the Thunderbirds. They know their job. They'll do it. But they might never have become pilots if the men on the ground hadn't served them so well. Let us pay homage to the instructors, too. To the Steve Brits everywhere who teach men how to fly and fight and win.